In this week's episode, we're going to be listening to the self-titled debut album from singer-songwriter, DJ and producer, James Blake. After learning classical piano at an early age, Blake's attention was pulled into the world of electronic music, leading to his first footsteps in the music industry, performing DJ sets in clubs around London. The transition came when Blake started to write his own music, experimenting with fractured R&B beats and his own heavily textured vocal, the amalgamation of which is the album we're looking at today. James Blake has since been nominated for five Grammys and worked alongside some of the industry's biggest names. As always, thank you for supporting the show. This is James Blake by James Blake. You're listening to Between the Tracks, a book club, but for music. Join the conversation at tracks.show. We ever going to get a Let's Bounce back? Listeners, let us know. If you miss it, because I miss it. And if you've never noticed anything, ignore it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that fade, he's good, isn't he? Yeah. A good fade. Studio fade. Captain Faderson. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Between the Tracks, episode six. We are back again. As you cooler heard in the top ever. of the show, cooler than ever. As you heard at the top of the show, we're going to be looking at James Blake's self-titled album, James Blake, another self-titled though. Uh, my name is Carl Lewis. With me, as always, is Charlie Fowler. Hello, Carl. And Chris, beep, 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 bud. Hello, everyone that's listening at home. How the devil are you, boys? Treswell, actually. Thanks. Treswell, cool. Yeah. Oh, impeccable French accent. Yeah. Uh, very well. Treswell, too. Treswell, too. Treswell. How are you, Carl? I'm also Treswell. Yeah. That's Treswell's for the Trezabas. How are you, listeners? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Um, What did you boys think of this? I had to get into it as i told you earlier it took me finding the right headspace actually yep which you well know this morning actually what i was going to try i woke up at six o'clock this morning because i wanted to listen to this album with the sunrise really it was absolutely hooning it down outside so i i said no is hooning it down a universal (laughs) term it is yeah where i'm from honestly though that is how i wanted to try this album out because i had to find the right headspace to listen to this album i got there and this album did 100 percent get better and better and better mm-hmm. every time i heard it me too yeah it was definitely a builder for me oh, yeah. yeah can i just tell you why i chose it again tell us and it's just straight honesty to you both and to the listeners i chose this because i know it's cool to like james blake oh <laughs> Is it? Is that what you, is it cool to like yeah, James Blake? I think it, I think it is cool to like James Blake, and I thought it was a classic example of one of those albums where people would reference it quite a lot, and people would reference the sound quite a mm-hmm. lot, and and I would do that thing of going, <laughs> yeah, of of course, I love that song, I love it. I see, or, yeah. you know, and knowing really? knowing that I'm like, I know limit limits your love, I know a few things, and then I'd be like, fuck, I can't, I can't do this anymore. What I need a, to be truthful. What a convoluted prick. Yeah. So that's, Cloud why, I, chaser. that's why I chose it. Oof. Well, to anyone who's listening and you've got to this episode because you're a fan of James Blake, Charlie thinks you're cool. That's endorsement you're indeed. You're all cool. Do you know what? Actually, that's useful because did any of you see the Anthony Fantano review of this album? The Internet's Busiest Nerd. The short one, like the five minute Yeah, one. it's only like five minute song. I did. At the start, he's, he's pretty much that guy. He sails in on the hype wave. Yeah, he there does. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a little bit. On the edge. Do you ride the hype wave often, Bunt? I, I haven't done yet. What's it like? Feels fucking tubular. <laughs> well, I have been this week, apparently, and we're only what ten years too late. Yeah, ten years e- too late to get cool. Excellent, as always. But if you if you don't think you're cool, then that makes you cool, right, kids? Yeah. <laughs> Double crickets. For Double crickets. Yeah. Double crickets on toast. Now, before we get started, I just want to shout out our Patreon for anyone who's listening. Um, we've had a bunch of requests across. 
Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, asking us about whether they can suggest one of their own albums and sending us their recommendations of their favorite albums, which is great. Like we'd love to be talking about albums that people love. So if you do want to do that, we've started in the interest of not being overwhelmed with suggestions. We're building that into the Patreon as a, um, a perk for anyone who, who is subscribed to our Patreon. It's available for people from the middle tier onwards. So if you go to our website, you can find a link to the Patreon or go to patreon.com forward slash between the tracks and join in there. Once you sign up, you'll be sent a message which will give you access to the album submission form. Send us your album. We stick them all in a bucket and just pick them out. And at the end of every season, so obviously there's three of us who host the show. So we do three rotations of ourselves, which would be nine episodes. And for the 10th episode, we'll bring in a user submitted album. It could be you. Could be you. It could be a stitch up. Could be a stitch up, could be lying to you. But if that seems to tickle your fancy and you want to send us an album that we can review on your behalf and come back and talk about it, then please do. We'd love to uh, hear your suggestions. That would be a dream to do that anyway. Exactly why we're doing it. With all of that being said, let's dive straight in and we'll pick up the story of this album in just a second. So yeah, this is Between the Tracks, episode six. We're looking at James Blake's self-titled album, James Blake, and this is track one, Unluck. Let's bias. That was track one, Unluck. I just wanted to start this one off by actually talking about the lyrics, because for me, I think it's quite fair to say that this album's pretty open to interpretation. I don't know how you guys found that. Yeah, the same. I didn't really latch on too much to the lyrics. There's certain songs where there's they're beautiful and poetic, but I didn't really grip them in terms of connecting with them. There are some, I guess, that are song songs and some that aren't so much. And we'll probably unpack those as we get to them anyway. Yeah, for sure. For sure. In theory, this should be the sort of album that I can get on board with then. A, an album that <laughs> yeah. I don't have to invest a load of time into hearing lyrics. And You are uh, notoriously not the lyric, eh? No, yeah. no, we say it every episode, it seems. Except you're the guy with the most lyric information. Well, that's because I'm going in twice as hard, so... Oh. He's overcompensating, as always with Chris. I found when I um, listened to this and then I looked back at the album cover for the first time, I was Mm -hmm. like, this already makes sense. Even if you look at the album cover. Yeah, there's a couple of recurring sense of identity moments that are throughout. And I think that is possibly something he's played into or is just the only thing to latch onto. But yeah, like the artwork, not being able to see his face properly and a couple of songs that we'll get to seem to reflect that. Mm -hmm. Now this is track one on this version of the album, which was the first release the original yeah 11 track release what i gathered was it was then pressed to vinyl and became a 13 track album correct i was wondering if you guys had had happened to have heard the 13 track run with tep and the logic at the start i didn't listen to it i didn't want to get distracted because we're listening to it in this format i didn't Mm. want to miss a song that might come before the first one so i kind of left that i will i will go to it maybe afterwards yeah i mean I'm, i'm happy that we did this 11 track run but he did ultimately prefer the 13, you know, when asked about it. Mm-hmm. I think that was more of his vision. But actually listening to Tap and the Logic, which is the first track on the sort of expanded version, I think that Unluck is a stronger starter personally. I prefer it. It's quite an uneasy start, yeah. the way the song mm-hmm. sounds. There's some really interesting things that are done in there, you know, for a pop artist. And he talks a lot about that anyway, doesn't he? His uncomfortableness in being labelled a pop artist and things like that. Yeah. But within this first track, there's some real wonky things going on. Some of the rhythmic qualities. It's not a click track, but I'm just going to call it that rhythmic 
underlying instrument. It's not grouped regularly. It's not grouped evenly. It's so funny you say that. I, I literally wrote, it sounds like a beat falling down the stairs. Well, it is, yeah. yeah. And all the stairs are different heights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not a slinky going down the stairs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that ties in quite nicely to some of the background of James Blake because he originally started off as a dubstep producer, if you will. Not the dubstep that... People well, came, but, but, yeah, but, 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 not, but, 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 not the Skrillex frog step as Robert. As Robert. <laughs> he was more of a traditionalist in the dubstep scene, which was more wobbly bass lines and the distorted and, and janky instrumentation. He studied popular music at Goldsmiths University. And whilst he was there, got into electronic music and started visiting different establishments and different clubs. He really started to fall in love with the whole scene and the whole movement of dubstep when he was at university, ended up spending a lot of time at the DMZ club in Brixton, which is now a legendary center point for the whole dubstep movement. And it was within that that he fell in love with the genre. And that's his roots, sample-based music. It does feel like everything's been organically, for lack of a better word, manipulated and changed. Yeah, he's real with his, with his synths. He uses like profits and all the kind of classic... I believe Since, it's a Prophet 8, Carl, if anyone's looking. Prophet 8, he does use that. But yeah, so I feel like this song was a salute or at least a gentle entry for anyone who was a fan of his with the EPs moving into this album. This was definitely a good welcome start, I think. For sure. What I actually find funny is that James Blake describes this song as a slow jam. Which I really? Was, which I thought was quite funny. It's an alternate take on a slow jam. Isn't it just? Yeah. As an intro to the album, though, there are lots of qualities that you know, pertain throughout the rest of the album. And one of them that I get the most from James Blake is the way that he chooses chord structures and uh, almost plays with your expectation. Some of these songs almost don't ever really land where I expect them to land until maybe one point in the, in the song where there might be a resolution and things do feel grounded. There's a lot of songs like that. That's, for me, one of his defining features, especially within this album. He does talk about that. Like he's, he's chosen them like that for a reason so that they are playing with your expectation, like stamping his own quality on them, like putting his fingerprint on his own music. For me, that's what I love the most about this song and moving forward into the rest of the album is that. He's, he's renowned for being an uncompromising musician and will do what he wants to do with the music and the layouts of his albums and has always been that way. For him to then break out into the mainstream and actually break as an artist is is incredible so with all of that being said we'll pick different things back up in a little bit but this is track two which is called wilhelm scream That was track two, The Wilhelm Scream. Ah! Now, did you look into The Wilhelm Scream? Well, do you know about The Wilhelm Scream? I know of The Wil do Wilhelm now. Scream. The Wilhelm Scream is a great little thing, man. It's like an in-joke for the movie industry or the film and TV industry. Ah! And the first time it ever appeared was in a 1951 film, which was called Distant Drums. And it's this funny scene. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. This guy's like walking across a, a river with a bunch of people and he gets bitten in the leg by an alligator. And that's the noise. And for some reason, they put it into like a sound library. The name comes from the film, the second film that used it, which was a 1953 film called The Charge at Feather River. And the guy in it is a guy called Private Wilhelm. And he gets shot in the leg with an arrow. And you know, like in, um, what's that Jim Carrey film? 
at Ace Ventura where he gets shot in the leg <laughs> oh, yeah. and he goes ah, and points to his leg. <laughs> it's like that, but they used the Wilhelm scream there. Right. And after that point, it became a running joke that the Wilhelm scream gets mm-hmm. put in films. So every single Star Wars yeah, film has a Wilhelm scream in it. It's the, oh it's my the Star Wars. God, Apart Star from Wars. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's in all kinds of films. And then it's been like used. people like Tarantino use it. It's all, in a, it's all a big ironic. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big in-joke. And um, yeah, I just think it's really funny. So a song about falling then, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And this is a quote from Wikipedia, the most reliable reference in the world. <laughs> says the Wilhelm scream is usually used when someone falls from a great height, which ties it in with the falling, falling, falling. Mm. Maybe. Very nice. Maybe. And there's another pretty epic fact about this song though as well this song is actually a cover of one of his dad's songs released in 2006 um which was called where to turn and what was his dad's name again his dad james liverland there you go which is a really great song in itself so i advise you to check that we'll put that on the playlist for sure it is really cool i actually brought a sample of it in so people can hear how it sounds about my dreams i don't know about my dreaming all that I know is that I'm falling, 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 falling. 2006, my ass. Is that 1986 by the sounds of it? Yeah, was it 2006? Apparently that's when it was released, but maybe my facts are wrong. I mean, his dad is probably from the 80s era at the very least, I suppose. <laughs> it I may mean, be released in 2006, but... Released 2006? There you, yeah. there you go. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It really does. It feels like Don Henley era, like uh, Boys of Summer and all that um, Phil Collins and stuff. There's way more smoke in that version, isn't there? And I love it though. I love that version, man. I think it's great. <laughs> and it's really nice of him to kind of do that tribute to his dad. Talking of covers, I've got a counterfact for you. Do you know that on Daniel Caesar's first EP, which was a three-track EP, there was a cover of this song on it? No way. Covers on go. covers. Covers on covers, yeah. So if you look at the 2013 EP by Daniel Caesar, Birds of Paradise, which is not on Spotify, unfortunately, but you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, he does a cover of this, just him and a piano, and it's beautiful, man, really good. Well, his old man, it seems, was quite a large factor in the upbringing of old James, wasn't it? Yeah. I saw him say that his dad had possibly one of the first recording studios in the country, apparently. that's what. Really? Yeah, that's what I heard James Blake say. It's a nice nod to his, to his old man. Yeah, I, I love that he did that. Yeah. It's really cool. And the song is the first introduction to sort of warmth in the album i feel compared to unluck yeah much more earthy and embracing rather than a lot more standard as well of course yeah you know it is based upon a song in the more standard sense isn't it he came in for a lot of stick for it though apparently in the i think within the scene maybe because it was such a surprise i mean he talks about it as if if people were really paying attention it was obvious he was going to get to that that's how he sort of describes it it's madness though like when i look on the youtube comments on most of his tunes and this one in particular actually i was looking at the video and the comments and all the top comments are always from people going this is the greatest musician of all time like Mm -hmm. he's such a pioneer he's such a first you really set the new trend for all electronic music and they're always those comments and they're always so positive on that note as well actually i thought it was quite interesting to look at his interpretation of his music but in particular this song and i found a cool quote which was that he said i took the verse and repeated it and built a whole piece around it I took this moment where I felt like it needed to distort and go into a dark place, somewhere that was really cavernous and fuzzy and warm. When I did that, that's when it became a finished track. Uh, I think that's an awesome way to describe it. That's how I picture it. If this is a song about somebody falling, the way that it manifests itself, this song, where the synth opens and opens and opens and gets bigger, gets louder and almost starts to swallow his voice. Like his voice starts really dipping under more reverb on his voice, so more echo on his voice as well. It eventually tightens up where he he may have metaphorically hit the ground or something. 
But that's exactly how I hear it, is this idea of falling within a massive cavernous space. I'm sure between the both of you as well, you'll probably know a lot more about synthesizers and things like this. And you did mention the Profit. Profit 8. Profit 8 earlier. I did find a really interesting website where if anybody out there happens to have one of these things, how to create the patches. Uh, did you the, really? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was, like across That's across cool. all of James Blake's. Um, no way. Oeuvre. Oh, I've said that twice now. Oeuvre. Yeah. Shout out Oeuvre. Uh, so I'll put that up in the show notes. It's on a website called reverbmachine.com. That's nice. so sick because I was so desperate to find him in the studio. Well, him in his bedroom, I suppose, mm-hmm. on this album. And I was desperate to find some like footage of him doing any part of the process and I, I mean, find it. some of the sounds are absolutely phenomenal on this album so yeah for any budding producers who might want to um recreate some of those sounds we're going to link to it in the show notes chris detective christopher bunt <laughs> it has... was really simple you just got to go into google you put in a few keywords and eventually one of these things pops up do you think that's what the fbi say when they catch a murderer they're like no, yeah, it was really yeah. simple man we just basically <laughs> tracked his phone and it was fine we caught who him. killed so and so but yeah he really is a master of of soundscapes and it really doesn't feel like just a stereo mix it feels like it's all around you and all encompassing so yeah, um sure. let's pick that back up uh after this next song which is track three i never learned to show track three i never learned to show Wow. That's my favorite song on the whole album. I absolutely love it. That ending, man, where it all kicks off. It's so awkward in the build up to it. And you literally at the point where you're so claustrophobic with it and then it drops into that massive part, man. It really gets me going every time. Is that how you feel about that song up into the lead up into that? Yeah, yeah. When it's like all starting to mash up and it's getting louder and louder and more crunchy. Yeah, I well, love I, it. I, mine's almost a bit different to that. Mine's more euphoric than that before it even gets there. Really? Yeah, it is. It makes me really uneasy and then bang, I release. think I, I get a lot of comfort in that synth line, in that sound, that like lead sound. It's. Again, I'd done this on another episode with a video game tie or something. Mm-hmm. There's something in that that is proper Mega Drive or Master System era yeah, yeah, yeah. Sega in there. Yeah. I love um, it. Love that build, man. But It's like, incredible. Yeah. When it drops, it reminds me, right? I was thinking about this, like put myself in the shoes of a musical supervisor for like film. I imagine like a horror film trailer. Imagine like The Grudge or something where that like horrible girl's crawling on the floor of The Exorcist no, or something. Those are my worst mm. nightmare. And as that happens, like as she's crawling down the hall all disjointed and stuff, that oh. drop is there. Man, oh, I'd imagine that. Well, he definitely does vary up quite a lot. And it it made me think of, of what my mum sent to me because my mum's got into this habit of sending me messages about upcoming artists and stuff. So, Because she is listening along at home. Our most avid listener. <laughs> she is. Hello, Mother Bunt. We'll turn it into a bit on the show at some point. Uh, but she knows who James Blake is. She said, oh, so it's James Blake. I will have you know that I have one of his songs on my playlist. Just one, Godspeed, which is from later on. And I just imagine her getting back to this song. Yeah. <laughs> Making a cup of tea in the kitchen. And this one blasting through the speakers. <laughs> uh, Sorry, mum, it's not what you thought it would be. Sorry. Sorry, Mother Bun. Hope we didn't lead you down the garden path. Though, <laughs> yeah. It is also worth pointing out on the subject of family, talking about Chris's mum. Although this song seems to allude to the fact that he has siblings, he is an only child. Mm, mm. Um, he tells Q Magazine that he didn't resent being an only child, but he saw it that other people had brothers and sisters and always felt slightly sorry for himself that he never learned to socialize. He missed out on some of the formative things that you would have gained from growing up around siblings, I guess. Yeah. It's kind of the nature of the album. There was a, a really funny quote that I saw, just a one-liner that he said that was, I was a lonely fucker. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his that's his sum up of the album that literally sums that whole point up in a nutshell what a, what a poor quote that is that lyric writing thing that we keep discussing he does make a big point of writing almost 
mantrically, if that's the word, mm-hmm. writing mantras. I think that gives him a platform to write music around that particularly. He talks about this song in particular, knowing that it wouldn't hold up as a song written in that way. It yeah. requires the bolstering of all of the instrumentation around it in order to make that song work. He has an interesting set of tools at his disposal because whereas a songwriter, a traditional songwriter, might have one instrument and one thing to work with, therefore the structure of the song and the vocal and the melody and the lyrics and all that have to carry the song, with him traditionally being a sample-based artist who uses his voice as an instrument and other people's voices as instruments, it makes it a lot easier on him, I think, to get away with that because even in something like this where it's essentially two lines looped throughout, the instrumentation is so interesting and so diverse that it doesn't get boring, mm-hmm. especially for with sure. that drop at the end. For sure. So let's move on to track four. Track four and five are a two-parter, so they kind of seamlessly segue into each other, but we will discuss them as two separate parts. So this is track four, Lindis Farn 1. That was track four, Lindisfarne 1, the first part of a two-parter between track four and five. I'm going to talk about Lindisfarne as a place, I guess, to start with, because although the song is very likely unrelated in any way, actually, it's quite an interesting place. Did you guys research Lindisfarne as a place? I did, Carl. Oh, did you? I didn't. I think as much as I know about Lindisfarne is that there was a kids' TV program that must have been recorded there because you used to have to send letters into so-and-so, so-and-so at Lindisfarne. That's what no I remember. No way. Wow. It must have been. There must be a studio or something there. Well. Oh, is that what you're going to tell me? No, no, no. But your letter may have found it quite difficult to get there because Lindisfarne is an island off the southeast coast of Britain. Oh. Now, okay. there is a causeway, a road, that goes from the mainland of England over to the island. And it's this one straight road but you can only get over it at certain times. The tide swallows the entire road at a certain point during the day. Gotcha. Carl's saying these amazing facts and he's so enthusiastic and I love it. But me, and, <laughs> me and Bunt are looking at each other and going, he doesn't know who he's talking about. He's, <laughs> he's never been to St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. Well, he hasn't been and, to St. Michael's And Mount, he hasn't yeah. gone over the causeway and he hasn't experienced the tidal bloody road. You've not been to Mara's Iron Boy, have, have you? Have you not, darling? I haven't. Taken- <laughs> well, so well, you, got, you can take your lenders from. We've got a castle, darling. Is that a common thing? Well, no, 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 it's not a common thing. I was common. thinking that this was like possibly the only island in the world that's got <laughs> no, this no. and everyone listening is going to literally have to pick pieces of the brain back up and put them in their head. I, know, I, could, I, could, I, could, I could tell, but I, sorry to ruin that for you. But. That's all right. So um, basically, yeah, Lindisfarne as a whole, um, that point I just made, I'm just going to wrap it up and shove it family up my... Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, certain times of the day, yada yada, uh, Chris's letter might have had to wait and then, and then eventually get over there. Or maybe it was floated over on a little tiny letter boat. Who knows? Oh, a letter boat. Letter boat, yeah. I think that's a type of boat, isn't it? it like, is. um, I believe it is. Like gravy boat. That's also a type gravy of boat. boat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a gravy. You say gravy. This is this is perfect time for me to pick up another point on this tune. Actually, Carl, I'll let you finish your story first because you were. No, no, no. My story is my story is ruined, mate. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> Go on then, Charles. What I really wanted to talk about in this song is the use of um. Silence. Wasn't that? <laughs> didn't you feel that anticipation just there? Didn't you just feel that then? Yeah. Weren't you both scared? We were ready to... I was worried, yeah, yeah. Okay, but... I thought you were losing it. He's a genius for this, and I always love when artists and musicians use it in a creative way, and he is the definition of someone that can use space and silence to make and build so much anticipation. 
Obviously, another great reference and a reference for him in general is Bonnevere, who also uses that incredibly well. You could easily mistake the vocal performance in this for Justin Vernon. For sure. He does He does use his voice so well in this, all of those effects, and it wasn't something that was done so much at that time. He was definitely paving the way with a lot of this stuff. Speaking about Justin Vernon from Bonnie Vere, he actually went on to do a song with Justin Vernon shortly after this was made. I think it was actually like a couple of months afterwards he did a song with him. That song was called Fall Creek Boys Choir, I think it was. Mm, that was released on the Enough Thunder EP, which was not far behind this, I think, and then was released in conjunction with Pack- okay. Package Together. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. Didn't know that. Yeah. So although this sounds very Bonnie Vere and, and Justin Vernon, they obviously went on to work together, so clearly fans of each other's work i think this is a, a beautiful song i love this there's something really magical about this i'm i'm still like oh this oh it's witchcraft this sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah. I, I want a keyboard just to talk into and <laughs> and do whatever and screw around with my voice quite a bit kanye west lists james blake as an inspiration for all that vocal stuff he did he described right. him as kanye west's favorite artist yeah I've, i saw i saw that come out of kanye west's mouth yeah yeah he said he was his that. favorite artist yeah. and so was i think he's doing it's... a vocoder at the time yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's my favorite <laughs> is that your vocoder impression that was really bad wasn't oh, it i was thinking no, like can i, I do something <laughs> cool with my voice it's no wonder they invented a vocoder and didn't rely on people doing it themselves if anyone wants to listen to my debut album <laughs> featuring only vocoder they'll be in the show notes <laughs> it's called charlie fowler the vocoder chronicles have you ever actually just sat and listened to this song with your with your headphones on though and heard the silences actually because they're not actually silences at all they're they're really loud there is like a, a track mixed in there or almost piped through his headphones while he's while he's singing again i think that is a great representation of what he's doing on a lot of the albums as well. He doesn't cover up all of the lines and all the drawings that he's made in order to make each of these songs. They're really exposed, almost like hearing the creation and the end result at the same time. If you're not and, and what does that sound like? That Like when you say there's almost a track playing underneath, is there something you can hear? In yeah, this? There's, there's, there's the bed of chords that are in there. Hmm. Again, just synth. It sounds like a fully produced track almost are leaking through his headphones oh got you so it's like there's something in there yeah and there's a few moments when his voice is at its loudest it almost like peeks through the gate quite a lot oh right maybe it is literally some kind of headphone spell something he's using to yeah reference and then maybe cut the silence it, in afterwards but it's weird it doesn't sound like it's where we get to with lindisfarne 2 mm. it, it sounds completely different i just as a cursory experiment i just put it in to google and youtube and i didn't see any sort of alternate versions i mean right. they might be out there well, Charlie, add Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence to the playlist. Magic, I know. The feeling I got from this song, it almost made me feel suspended, like zero gravity kind of thing. I felt very much like I was in space. I didn't feel like I was in space, but it gave me the feeling of that, like the kind of silence of space where it's almost deafening and the little kind of like, like the little um, catchphrase sounds. No, no, no. It's, it's the Metal Gear Solid codec sound is what it is. If you ever played Metal Gear Solid on your there PlayStation... You I don't feel bad about talking about video games on this album because he's a video game lover and he says that in a few interviews that that's one of his one of his loves and he must he must get some of it from there. Well, there you know? go. Maybe you, you've, that's twice you've referenced games in it, so you must be must be locking into his his game sphere. It, is it saying more about him or is it saying more about me as a kid? Probably both. Yeah, it definitely felt like it was like I say suspended in space and all those little sounds drifting around. It just really painted a picture for me. And then Lindisfarne too because of where the guitar and the kick drum comes in, it immediately grounds it for me. So in my mind, the way I see these two songs is Lindisfarne 1 is very floaty and almost above ground and in space kind of sound. And then as soon as it goes into Lindisfarne 2, I felt really grounded. Static? Question mark. We'll get to why I'm asking you that in a second. Okay, well, let me stew on the word static and think about what context you're using <laughs> that in. You know the band Static X, right? Of course, yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's listen to Lindisfarne Part 2 and carry on this conversation in just a second. Here you come, 
That was track five, Lindisfarne 2, or Lindisfarne Part 2, depending on how you look at it. Carl, one second. Through my powers of research, there are 43 unbridged tidal islands that one can walk from mainland Britain. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. That makes Lindisfarne... Ugh. I feel terrible, though, because you were out, you were off on this absolute journey of discovery. I was, I was, I thought I was blowing people's minds because my mind was in bed when I read yeah. that. Yeah, but you've also gone in on St. Michael's Mount being the pinnacle of that. It is the pinnacle of it. It is the one that's the second picture in Wikipedia. What's the first? Uh, just a, a, like a map. Lindisfarne, probably. Lindisfarne. Yeah, <laughs> gotta be. Well, I'll tell you what, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll link and we'll independently review every single one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll spend a few hours on that. We'll get it all listed out nicely for you. We'll rank them in terms of appearance and all that stuff and, uh, and let you all know. Tune in next week to Between the Islands. Between the Islands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Chris, you mentioned static. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Tell me about static, will you? It's a sort of here or there point, but in a Pitchfork article, he mentions that that song there was the only song that wasn't written on a mode of transport. Uh, everything else it was written on train, tube, or plane of some sort. So Lindisfarne are the only lyrics that don't ha- generate a sense of movement in it. So whether or not you wow. feel that within that. So he wrote every other song on this album whilst on the move. Yeah, I guess if you're busy like that and you, yeah, no, it makes all sense. your downtime yeah, yeah. is that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that, but that does kind of tie into where I was thinking about this feeling very grounded. Not necessarily static, didn't come to mind. I thought you were talking about static as in like radio static. Shout out episode four for Wilco. thanks Wilco the gift that keeps on giving absolutely but yeah I thought you I perceived it in that yeah the first part sounded really floating and up above Mm -hmm. above the world the silence in the the dead the silence of space yeah and as soon as that guitar and kick drum comes in it felt like a shot back to earth and obviously when you listen to the album in succession it happened seamlessly yeah so at that point I was like oh wow feel very much back in the room now that that combination of the acoustic guitar and you know the processed vocals and stuff it shouldn't work it shouldn't work like organic instrumentation and then super processed vocal and electronic music. Mm -hmm. It it shouldn't merge that well. And I just, the balance he's found in this tune Mm -hmm. is insane. And the, and the guitar itself sounds so distorted. And so it it sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, it depends. It's completely overdriven. It's completely distorted. It's like the way I can imagine he's done it from a sound point of view is plug the guitar in and turn the gain further than it can possibly go, like mm. up to 11. Yeah. So there's completely overloading the preamp and then he's played it and it sounds so overloaded and distorted. But in contrast with the rest of his crisp production, it just sits nicely rather than sounding yeah. shit. I've got to mention this. I found something interesting on this track. I read an article where he talks about falsetto. It was an interview actually. Mm-hmm. And he said, which I thought was really cool for this tune, falsetto for him is a marker of disembodiment and uncomfortability with your real self. And... For that reason, the way he uses it is for him to remove his own embarrassment from a situation because he's the falsetto is almost not him because it uh, it's in dis, disembodiment. Like he he is up there somewhere else. He doesn't relate that to the way he talks. Got you. So it's almost like a different yeah, character. For exactly. Him. I guess that's your you're in your head then when you're exactly. in falsetto. Aren't you, well, that's exactly it. Yeah, probably. rather than in your body. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, very okay. cool. Well, I, yeah. like him. Um, what, what do I know? Again, though, I I love it. The two together. The two in tandem are are beautiful. You wouldn't know that it's two. It's listed as two separate tracks, really. No, it's it segues seamlessly as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's beautiful as a two parter as well. I like that he split it because it 
feels like that emphasizes the fact that there's two different places in which he's writing or, or producing or recording. Also, to add a bit of fuel to my point about the first part being flying above ground and the second one being grounded, mm. you've obviously got the line, Beacon, don't fly too high. Mm-hmm. You know, just saying, maybe yeah. I'm in James Blake's brain. Oh, yeah. Goddamn. James, James, me old mate, if you're listening and I'm correct, don't say anything or, or contact us at all. If I'm wrong, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> Cool. Gonna do um, one of them every week as well. Yeah, one of them every week. Uh, yeah. Did either of you boys watch the video for this? Oh man, wait. Yeah, I know. Is this that one? Yes, it is. Oh, man, it is fucked. I watched it literally last night on the couch. Thought it was going to be amazing. Like it's a fucking COVID nightmare. It's, it is a COVID nightmare. It's, What's happening? It, it's ba- <laughs> I've not no. seen it. It's basically the way to describe it is ritualistic. It's it's, pagan ritual, isn't it? It's kind of mates in a weird setting, and they're like spitting into cups. And there's this girl that's going through something and they all take turns spitting into a bowl and the end of it, she drinks it. Um, and they're doing all these weird rituals and it's, it's mental. And it's no like, one has talked about this being the induction of COVID-19. <laughs> mate, <laughs> yeah, it, mate, is, it was. That's, it is the maddest, like, it's like an episode of Skins on acid. Yeah. It's like <laughs> Skins is already on acid. Well, exactly. It makes it work. <laughs> it's like this bunch of people, like Charlie says, who are like in this cult, I guess. And this girl is going through some sort of initiation. They all pass a bowl around and all take turns of spitting in it. Then they pour it into a shot glass and the girl who's getting initiated drinks it. Step one. Then they cut like a hole out of a shirt so her stomach's there and they all start touching it. Then she's like sucking the fingers. Yeah. And it's just like, man. It, that, but... Yeah, in a COVID world, watching that video now, you're looking at it being like, fucking stop it. Yeah, <laughs> this is Everyone it. get away from each other. You're all fucked. Then they put a load of like weird paint on each other's faces, dance around in the garden. Then the next morning... They're all like at a bus stop with all this stuff still on them. The girl who's been initiated gets on the bus and as she's waving, she's like waving to them out the window and she's crying a little bit. And then it ends. And you just like... This is it. And I, after that, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this video is mental. And I was like, I've got to find an innocent way to describe this. I was like, I think it might be a coming of age kind of thing. <laughs> no, you know, it's she, fucked. Is what she's it is. got off on the bus to go to the real world and they've had their weird childhood rituals. And I don't, I think it might be a million miles away from what the song's about. But It sounds like a, a night out on a, a rugby freshers week, you know, where people <laughs> yeah. that are really into sports and piss into pipes. I had a story where someone had to drink a poo. Uh, drink a, how do you drink a poo? Uh, I, no, that's for the Patreons. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. How do you drink a poo? <laughs> step-by-step guide. If you'd like a step-by-step video guide of how to drink a poo, sign up to our Patreon. Um, you can get it for £4.50 a month and you'll get to see a video of Charlie demonstrating just that. So let's move on from Linda's Fawn and its crazy music video and into a track called Limit Love, which is another cover. You could argue that this is the only cover on the album, but obviously you've got the one, the reinterpretation of his dad's song, which is technically a cover. So this is track six, Limit to Your Love. There's a limit to your love Like a waterfall in slow motion Nice, Bunty. Wow. wow. Get up there. Goosebumps. Mm. That was track six, Limit to Your Love, a cover featuring of... Featuring Chris Bunn. Featuring Chris Bunn, a cover of Feist's song of the same name. First single from the album? It is. First single before the album, eh? Came out before the album, yeah. So this was a track that almost blew him 
Oh, it was a breakthrough moment for him. <laughs> I was like, where are you going with that one? Oh, yeah. <laughs> almost what? A song that almost blew him off um, <laughs> before the album was released. So yeah, it was like kind of a breakthrough moment for him. It was picked up by radio and stuff. So that definitely contributed to the anticipation for this album. I remember this coming out though. It was massive when it came out. And yeah. to me, I, I actually hadn't ever heard anything like that. Um, mm. I, I can remember like just probably hearing it in the car when I was doing all of my listening was just in the car. And it made me feel like when I first heard the XX as well, and he talks about the XX, I distinctly remember the mood and the the time frame in which I heard both of those both mm-hmm. of those songs. The XX really clearly at night in a car again. But this must have been the launch pad, mustn't it? This this just catapulted. It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the XX, he describes the XX as a major influence on him. He says that because of the nature of their album and the sound of it, that paved the way and made things a lot mm. easier for him yeah. to progress. But yeah, beautiful track. I love this song. It takes hey. me back to a really good free time in life. Have you seen this one live though? So I haven't seen a full James Blake show, but I do remember, I think it was my 21st birthday because I went, I was at Glastonbury on my 21st birthday. And I remember like being completely out of my mind and walking through, I was trying, trying to get back to the tent, I was trying to find my friends. And I'd walk past the main stage and James Blake was playing, but I stopped and just watched. It was in between songs. So the stage was dark and I was like, oh, I wonder who this is. And I stood there watching and he played this song and live it is fucking massive. Like the bass is ridiculous. Like I think he makes a, a point to that, but the bass literally, like I, after that festival, I had to regrow my eyebrows because I'm pretty sure the bass just <laughs> blasted them up. I'm pretty sure my trousers are still floating above Glastonbury somewhere because everything just got blasted off when I walked past this. That does tie me into a quote I've got actually from the Ooh. Daily Telegraph where he says, this song is a physical track with the sub at a frequency that rattles you. I made it to be devastating in a club on a huge sound system. Uh-huh. So Fair. that ties into that. But live, man, yeah. it was literally my eyeballs were rattling. I alternated with listening to this album either through headphones or through speakers at home. Mm-hmm. And I was just sat making notes on it. And I was quite close to my speakers. They were like on, on my right-hand side. And that sub, the movement in that sub was so interesting on what it did, what it was doing to me. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was incredible. And it wasn't even a, a massive volume. It was just pushing me almost. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like physics. It does sound like one of those basses that would break, totally smash the speaker up. Yeah. Not to be geeky, and I'm asking Carl this because he knows his stuff. Cool. Is I, it, don't, I didn't want to answer of, the question anyway, but... Sorry, sorry Bunt. Is it one of those, because the kind of tempo of it, if you like, is pretty fast. Is it one of those ones that doesn't let the speaker come back on itself, so it's just pushing out? Well, speakers are really good at moving because the higher the frequency, the faster the speaker moves anyway. So when it's lower, it has more space. To, to move, it, and it moves further because the wavelength's longer. Basically, every single space or everything has a resonant frequency. So, you know, sometimes when you're in a room or in a hallway or a corridor, and you can make one certain note that seems to like feed back in the room where it gets really loud, just one particular note. Sometimes you do it in the shower or something or whatever. I know I do. And that, like human bodies have a resonant frequency as well, depending on your size and depending on your build. But there will be a certain frequency or a, or a little kind of section of frequencies that will almost make your body vibrate. It's the resonant frequency of your body. Like an acoustic guitar has a resonant frequency when you knock on the acoustic guitar. Everything does. Buildings do. When you build tall buildings or build bridges, you have to yeah, yeah. get that shit sorted. Exactly, because one certain frequency could make the whole thing fall down. And that, you know, everyone talks about the brown note being the note that makes you shit yourself. <laughs> <Everyone's>, <laughs> everyone, everyone talks about it. And I've got it now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and so, you know, with everything having a resonant frequency, human bodies have them, and I assume that he estimated the frequency range that touches that and made that the bass note of the song thank you carl that is exactly how i was going to answer it i'm so offended you didn't ask me yeah but... i'm so offended because carl's nicked one of my quotes for this song as well so that's fine we'll keep it to yourself i like writing notes about you two in my my things and on this one i put 
I bet Carl fucking loves it because it's got dub delays. <laughs> I do, and there's it. the keys that are like, bleh, 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 yeah, that's bleh, the bleh, that's bleh. the one of the best bits of the song, I think. That's right, so Carl Strauss. I'd also have liked that. Bit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I also put um, Chris likes it too. <laughs> <laughs> we can have a foid. A foid. A foid. You'll do nothing. Clear something up for me a minute. Limit to your love, right? Like a waterfall in slow motion. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no limit to that. Is that the whole point of the song? There's no limit to. Mm, hang on, love. Hang on, there's a limit to your love. It's like a waterfall in slow motion. You mean that the, the waterfall hasn't stopped? There's no, a waterfall never stops. Like that and, doesn't show a limit. Yeah, and nor does, and especially a slow motion waterfall. I think what he's doing is referring to it. So there's a limit to your love. And then he's using a couple of examples of things that shouldn't be, i.e. a slow motion waterfall or a map with no oceans. He's talking about things that shouldn't be, I think. And right. love should have no limit. So I think he's using it as a comparison there you go. to the fact that love shouldn't have a limit. This isn't his problem. This is um, Leslie this Feist's is, yeah, problem, it, not it his. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Leslie Feist, she gave him um, big respect for this song. She sent him a message. There was an interesting lapse of communication on this. I was going to say, I'm looking confused because I didn't hear, I heard the opposite, but you go. In an interview with Nick Grimshaw, he asks about whether she's been in touch with him or he's been in touch with her about the song. James Blake says, we sent her the song but never really heard anything back. But, you know, if she likes it, great. But if not, I just wanted to know I'm a big fan of her music. And that was it. So I was like, oh, maybe she didn't get back to him. In a different interview with her, she says, yeah, I sent him a message giving him really big respect on the song and wanted him to know that she was a big fan, but he never got back to her. So she was like, maybe there's a bunch of people between her and him. So she never really got a response. So it's like they're both kind of passing ships in the night. And I heard from him in an interview that... When he reached out to her, or his management did, he got an, a reply saying that Feist never listens to cover versions of her. Wow. Is that right? Songs. Yeah. Yeah. Ah! Yeah. Wow. Big one of those. Right. So it could be any of those. Well, maybe they got it at a time when James Blake wasn't very big and just poo pooed it as nothing. That's true. Then when he got yeah. really big, she was true. like, mm-hmm. hashtag true. respect. This is, I did all of my research just on 2011 interviews. So yeah, you're probably right there. There you go. Probably right there, there you go. Um, that one for me, Track six marks such an incredible half to an album. I do like Where We Go because, again, we hit lots of different variations on themes coming up, but that as a run is spot on, like incredible. Yeah, really, really beautiful songs and really well laid out. Let's move on to track seven, which is a song called Give Me My Month. That was track seven, Give Me My Month. It's a real beauty, that one. I love how gospel-y it is in places, like some real gospel turnarounds mm-hmm. in there to give it resolve. Yeah, It doesn't resolve very often, that song. It seems to be always held in suspense. It only tends to resolve once. I think it ends unresolved as well. So it makes it feel quite awkward. What did you guys think of that one? I love the vulnerability of it. And this sounded very James Blake without the production that he would normally use you know the songs earlier in the album were had a lot of production this had barely any but it still felt very james blake to me yeah it demonstrates again his his style it does fit in that gospel soul he sort of has a little bit of a problem with being labeled soul and soulful and things like that that Mm -hmm. comes up quite often but there is certainly an homage to that sort of period i guess discussing his influences and obviously we talked about at the top of the show about how he's a classically trained pianist 
he lists a composer, a guy called Eric Satie, as an influence of his. And I mean, Eric Satie was was amazing. He was such an eccentric and such an amazing composer. One of my favorite pieces of music of, of all time is one of his uh, Gymnopodies, they were called, and it's the second one. It's a piece of music that you, everyone will recognize. But it's so beautiful. And the way that he wrote and the way he composed was very simple with lots of space in there. He always described that the delivery was how his songs garnered their emotion. And I feel like James Blake definitely took some form of inspiration from that. He he talks about how he spent five years listening to Eric Satie and a bunch of different composers. Really feels like some of that is bleeding through in this song. The sparseness and the randomness and the lack of resolve. Eric Satie was very depressive with his songs and they were all very emotional and sad. And I really feel like he's embodying that in this song. Let's use sad as a little sidestep, shall we? And just mm -hmm. transport forward in time. Because I think there is one thing worth talking about with James Blake. I think this came about in 2008 and it is this idea of him writing, not writing sad music, but him often being labeled as writing sad boy music. Mm -hmm. And I think he rightly so did address how problematic that could be to be labeled a sad boy. I mean, you can embrace it if you want. You know, I live at Sad Lad Pad. That's our WhatsApp name. So, you know, <laughs> embrace you the sadness. So the single that was released was called Don't Miss It. And it was reviewed by Pitchfork as another beautifully brutal song to add to Blake's large catalogue of sumptuous sad boy music. And then, you know, the article goes on and then he says towards the end, and while it's hard to deny the prettiness of Blake's music, the mopiness of it all is starting to feel cloistered. Maybe he needs a night out, which I think is patronizing as fuck, number one. <laughs> yeah, right. Yep. And fair play to James Blake for calling him out on it because he said essentially i won't read exactly what he said but you know he said it was closing doors for men that wanted to be emotional yeah and, um, men get sad too yeah he sort of did it in a funny way and i mean an awkward way in that he compared himself to how easy women had it in music to be emotional which was a bit of a squeaky bum moment if mm. you will if you let me get away with that one but i'm glad that he addressed that head on and called this person up for that before. fuck that guy or girl yeah. whoever it was yeah. it was Amen. it was a bloke of course yeah of course but yeah, a really emotional piece of music there for me. I really enjoyed it. I think it was, like Charlie said, nice to hear him with the production stripped back to see what kind of performance he gives in that respect. And it was completely unsurprising that it still feels like James Blake. I think his delivery is just, just amazing on this. It takes a lot of that delivery from an amazing singer, which surprised me because he does talk a lot about his hang-ups with his voice and growing into his voice. But he took a lot of it from Sam Cooke, who is hands down one of the best singers we've ever had. The unflashy and flat styles that sometimes Sam Cooke embraces, which I thought was massively interesting mm -hmm. to take such a heavyweight like that and use that as your as your template. Does he uh, cite Sam Cooke as an influence? Yeah, yeah. It's specifically a song called Lost and Looking as an example of that sort of style. Wow, yeah. really cool. Mm -hmm. um, shall we move on? Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go on to track eight, which is called To Care Like You. Was to care like you Protest Was to care like you That was track eight, To Care Like You. It feels like this one throws back to his earlier days as more sample-based dubstep mm -hmm. days. Yeah. Something that's really interesting about this album as a whole is that he's the only performer on the whole thing. So all of those vocals you hear and all of those things aren't samples. The, his voice 
altered. So all of those voices that might sound female or might sound different are all just him, all tuned and manipulated. It's so good, so creative. This feels a lot more in touch with the subculture at that time. Like I mentioned earlier, you had like Subtract out there and you had Jamie XX doing his thing. Later on, you had Disclosure and Floating Points and all that. And they all seem to fit this subculture. And Subtract's first album and Jamie XX's first album were released the same year, 2011. Mm -hmm. So you can't say that one person might have influenced the other. But this song particularly seems to fit in that time and in that little group of, of artists releasing at that time. Definitely. Man, I read a quote and it was so similar to Chris's one that you mentioned before about the XX. But James Blake said that the XX really warmed the seat for him. You mentioned that before, right? And he said the way that people listen to sparse electronic music really changed in this time period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the XX, because that album was just before it. And it did pave the way for it because it was a breakthrough moment for music. It was a whole new movement with that XX thing. And for them to go so popular with it, obviously music in a similar vein to the XX was probably already around. It sometimes just takes one artist to blast it through to the mainstream. And you can trace that back through music as a whole. You know, you can yeah. listen to Nirvana and be like, well, they broke the grunge movement. It's like, no, they were just the first band to make it popular with that stuff. There was... Bands dating back to the late 80s that were doing that stuff. And that echoes itself all through all through time. Obviously, the XX took it to a certain level with their popularity. Then James Blake comes out with this smash and literally takes that to a whole new level and suddenly paved the way and opened the door for a bunch of other artists. Mm -hmm. So it's a real kind of nice little movement of music, this, where people are making new and fresh ground, opening the door for other artists to come in and follow that trodden path. It's interesting going back to listen to that first XX album, though, because I did just as a little exercise and just recounted it in my memory a little x exercise an x exercise <laughs> oh jeepers ah! god <laughs> and it's quite surprising though how much difference there really is in there when you go back to the xx we're still dealing with instrumentation maybe the electronic influence isn't quite as hammered home as in on here. the xx or, yeah it's an interesting one with the xx because you have to separate the XX and you have to separate Jamie XX. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Jamie XX is a lot more like this. Mm -hmm. yeah. So obviously the potential for this kind of music was in the XX in the form of Jamie. But the duo that fronted the XX were a lot more guitar and bass yeah, and that always course. sat at the front. Yeah. But I guess the, the sound of it and the sparseness of it and the just alternativeness of it, I think is what paved the way, not necessarily mm. the, the sound. Sure. I was, I was actually doing some research on this track. I don't know if you guys ever base any influence on what other people write. They're just completely random people that comment on a post. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they really hit me. And I'm like, wow, that's such a good way of describing it. Yeah. Probably mega fans of the artist, to be fair. And one guy said, I think his skill is in putting as much meaning as possible into the smallest package as possible. Mm -hmm. and I thought that was quite interesting. Mm. I think he does that really well. Like, I guess that's minimalism. To minimalism it. to yeah. it in every way. Yeah. Yeah. When I said before that this album was really rewarding on repeat listens, it did get better and better. The reason I think for me was that I knew where the moments of grounding were in each song. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you're, you're wading through some quite difficult things until you know that something quite familiar is coming up or something quite safe is coming up. Mm -hmm. And in this song, it's that 16th note. Yeah, pattern. yeah, yeah. When I, the song starts, that. I'm like, Oh, I can't wait to hear that. Just that like dee -bee -dee -bee -dee -bee, mm -hmm. that, that really quick thing. And you get a lot of melody almost out of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that time stretch sample as well alongside it. Yeah, it gives the whole thing like a almost like a tonal center where it's yeah. like 
You can yeah. latch onto it then, yeah. yeah. But it surprised me that every time I got around to listen to this song again, I was like, that's the thing. That's my comfort in this song. That's mm -hmm. the thing that I want to hear again. Yeah, 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 yeah. This kind of music has that. It has a lot of moments, I think, by nature and by style. Its purpose is to be quite disjointed because the more disjointed something is or the more tense something is, the more satisfying the drop is. And that's what makes these songs and sounds enviable. Yeah, Dance music has been using it since the beginning of time. And, you know, more traditional poppy music might use cadence and resolve in, in chords to give you that sense of satisfaction or like we talked about last week key changes and stuff like that mm -hmm. in dance music or electronic music it's more of a build and a drop or a real satisfying grounding piece like yeah. you mentioned in this yeah. and i love hearing that because it's something that's so foreign to me i'm not an expert in this genre of music or the subgenres, and so i do like hearing that and, and especially the bit you pointed out just now but then we're, we're about to change tack now going into the next song aren't we we're going to leave all of that sort of stuff behind again exactly yeah. yeah he just seems to drop that little style of his past in every now and then they serve as really nice kind of anchor points so with that being said the perfect segue chris let's move on to track nine which is called why don't you call me That was track nine. Why don't you call me? Please. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting one, that one. It's all cut up and... Very jarring. Very, yeah, very jarring and janky. We've, we've got the link, haven't we? We've got, oh, an, we've got another link. We're coming back to the Between the Tracks link. Well, Joni Mitchell appears once more. Joni Mitchell once again. She's here. She's among us. You wouldn't have known that, right? Picking no, this album? No. 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 And you would never know listening to this song. Well, no, you wouldn't. Well, it's not... It's not Joni Mitchell that he's sampling. It's his... He's re-recorded it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's re-recorded it, which he's released. It's on the Enough Thunder EP, which we also had the Bon Iver feature as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Joni seems to be everywhere all the time. She does. So in, in this song, he re-records and resamples a small part from a Joni Mitchell song called A Case of You from an album called Blue. You can hear that sample about 43 seconds into the song. When I say about 43, I know it's, yeah. it's exactly you don't about. You, you either about 40 seconds or you're about yeah. 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah, it's somewhere between 43 and 43. I what, that's a classic for me when I'm telling people the time and they go, uh, excuse me, uh, can you, what's the time? And I'm like, sure, it's, it's about uh, 5.17 actually. Circa <laughs> there. Mm. But yeah, and then obviously like Chris just said, he released the entire cover of A Case of You shortly afterwards. Uh, and he still performs that song a lot live. I know he did it on um, ex-Britain resident James Corden's talk show in America. Although we'll have him back if you take Piers Morgan, perhaps. Piers Morgan, yeah. Who also might need a job at the minute. So if anyone's got any shifts going in the Tesco or something, yeah. give Piers a call if you need a wanker for anything. <laughs> <laughs> a wanker. Yeah. Well, you're good at being a wanker. Yeah, yeah. If you need a professional wanker, mm. give Piers a call. Mm. Or Chris Bunn. <laughs> or Chris Bunn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just meant like, on the, me in the literal sense. Give me a call on behalf of Piers Morgan. Is that what you meant? Of course. Oh, if there's something strange in your underpants. <laughs> um, you're going to call Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan, yeah. yeah. Um, but that album Blue by Johnny Mitchell is actually interesting because it's a whole album about a breakup. It's about her breakup with James, James Dean. Taylor. James Taylor. James Dean. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. <laughs> You know, you know what I meant. Um, <laughs> James Dean. <laughs> JD. But yeah, with, with a breakup with James Taylor and is a really emotional group of songs that I think he resonated with quite a lot because it's, uh, well, it's just quite sad. Mm -hmm. 
And mm. oh, big time. Yeah, it's and called I think, blue for fuck's sake. Yeah, <laughs> Dabba yeah. Dabadi, I think was the extended yeah, version. That was the second. That was the second version of it. <laughs> I'll go and watch that on YouTube. There's a 20 minute video series, I think, by Vice. It'll either be by, by Vice or something similar. That's one of the songs on there, and it's fascinating. It's got like that, and it, it's got like. Are we talking about Eiffel 65 now? Yeah, yeah. it's got Eiffel 65. It's got Shaggy. Uh, it wasn't me it wasn't me probably was though and it probably has like Cisco Thong Song on there and stuff Classic. like that it's got all of those all of those types of songs on there and it's fascinating wow right. well we'll link to it in the yeah, show notes of course, of course. let's uh, move on let's move on to track 10 which is a song called I Mind like it's if you do this like we're doing it live you're like you're listening to between the tracks fm coming to you live on the drive time show that was track 10 i mind um that was one of my faves you know you were talking about the hi-hats earlier yes and that gave you some kind of comfort and you were like right. when that like repetitive vocal thing came in for some reason i got goosebumps i was like oh really? god it was so strange because so not traditional and the way it doesn't even sit that comfortably i thought you were even going to say it was the drums like it was the percussion but you're not saying no i'm not that's what that's where my comfort is is through the percussion well, well when the when the like groove comes in and stuff you're like this is amazing mm. and also that perfect use of like space and anticipation mm -hmm. again to mm -hmm. just to build into something bigger there's so much in this song that i feel like you have to listen to quite a few times there's some gorgeous chords halfway mm -hmm. through that are super buried and i'm like what a bloody waste yeah, you have to really listen too because they're not up front, which is the beauty of a lot of this music too. The other thing that I thought was cool about this track is that I reckon you could cut this up a million times and make a million cool hip hop songs out of it. Right, mm -hmm. very yeah. simple. I think there's so many cool sections in it. And lastly, I just have to say because I just feel I'm on a bit of a run here. He's on a run. Charlie's let loose. I've let loose. That vocal, the repetitive vocal thing, really reminded me of an artist that I work with called Sam Romans. Mm -hmm. And the, the timbre of his voice mm -hmm. just, just gave me Sam Romans. And, and, it, and it really, yeah, I was loving it. Okay. There you go. Anyway, next song. <laughs> First hand experience over here. All right. Whatever. First hand Charles, as we like yeah. to call him. I love that it has, well, there's basically no lyrics really at all, apart from little snippets. So it's another example of him using the human voice as an instrument rather than a message delivery service. Are we all, are we all cool with me saying that? You're going to let me get away <laughs> no, with it. Of course I am. Yeah. you let me get away with you, it. You said um, a letter boat earlier. A gravy boat and a letter boat. You know, I'm creative with me words. Everyone gets it, right? Everyone get it? <laughs> <laughs> Double cricket. <laughs> but yeah, it has like a real world music vibe then in the middle when it kicks in with that groove. Usually a song within the first eight bars, a drum beat will come in. Some sort of groove will be there. But with this music, it stays abstract and stays vague and soundscapey until the music feels like it needs it rather than when the tradition says it should be. For sure. And I, I just feel this is why James Blake is so accessible to people that might pick up this album and go, no, this isn't for me. Because when you listen to it, the door is open for you to interpret it the way you want to. Mm -hmm. Like this could be... You know, Chris mentioned that no, this could be you waking up and the sun's coming up. This could be you in a bar in a fucking cool holiday destination. And this comes on, you're like, oh my God, I feel fucking great. It could be you in dem clubs. It, this could be you in dem clubs. Mm. Who fucking knows? <laughs> 
You um, see when he's talking about when he went to Bergen in no yeah did he Germany. play or did he DJ? No, um i think he was just there Where? the berg the Bergheim in berlin what did you what did bunk call it i called it Bergheim. i didn't know how to no 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 if i'm keeping oh, do i have to fucking yeah you're, 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 you're having that that's not coming ladies out. and gentlemen Bergheim. all right whatever. thank you fuck you i'm never gonna go there i'm never gonna go there it sounds like my idea of hell so it doesn't Carl, matter me and carl played there doesn't well, actually, matter. nearly there didn't we this story isn't about you um it's about <laughs> 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 oh play. hey if i'm gonna get rinsed then I'm you, out of I have to pull you down with me, all right? <laughs> um, when he went there, he was he was just saying that he couldn't imagine writing these long songs because you said about this song, it could go on and on and on mm -hmm. um, as long as it was refreshed like that. Yeah. And um, when he went to Bergain, I'm going to fucking keep double down it, yeah. on that one. You won't be allowed in if you say that, I swear. <laughs> yeah. Sven will knock you back. Maybe that's what everybody's doing wrong is they get turned away because they don't call it that. You know what? Could Maybe. Be right. hmm? But he went there and ended up spending the whole night there like walked out daylight not realizing it was as early in the morning as it was mm -hmm. or, or something and he talks about this idea of almost magpieing these things like being exposed to these moments where he, he would never think he'd be able to do that uh, but he said that during that experience it reinstated the importance of groove and that primal urge for drums that's how he des right, describes right. it very cool which feels most appropriate on this song throughout the whole record because it takes a while and, to drum yeah and then he found something else and he's like, well, why, why do I actually, why do I need drums? So yeah, he does that where he goes in and maybe that's why the EPs early on, which were, I think released in the same year, all three of those. Yeah. EPs, yeah. He was output was massive. But they were, they all have different identities as well. Yeah. So it's probably a mindset thing. We were consciously trying to adopt a different, yeah. or adopt something that works. Um, I mean, I imagine there's no better place as an artist to find out how well your music's resonating than in a club. You play a song like this and it's like if no one's dancing until the drums come in, maybe the drums should come in earlier. Mm. Maybe that suspense is enough. Maybe people are just vibing and then when it drops, it takes it to a whole new level. Yeah. Did, did you see that there was an interview with him talking about exactly that? They're like, oh, I've heard this thing that you do in a club, which is that just before you play a banger, you'll just play silence. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I don't really want to be known for that, but I just feel like it builds that thing. And he's, he literally says that before he knows a track that's going to hit, he'll just literally leave the ambient sound of the room in there for people to get like one turn the lights up, up as well <laughs> maybe the lights come on yeah no he's not playing silence he's playing some john cage he's playing 433 which is an entirely silent track jeepers, <laughs> track. jeepers. but thought, thought it was famous but sure sure yeah yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. I a great one actually Me and Carl, yeah. like <laughs> that's gonna be my new first dance if, song i wonder if i've even got the numbers right 430 it's 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 it's, it's approximately is that, how long the song, is that how long the song is <laughs> It is. Oh, it is. Wow. Well, there oh, we go. We've if, gone off the deep end now on this end. If this that's end. in any way true, not going to lie, sounds like bollocks, we'll stick it in the <laughs> list. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. For anyone, just to go back in terms of what Chris was just saying, for anyone who doesn't know what the Berghain is, it's a massive, world-renowned nightclub. <laughs> or the Berg... What do you call it? Berghain. The Berghain. <laughs> it's a massive... That sounds way more German. It, that's, that's a French stew, I, mean, I think. Be, I mean, the Berghain... The Bergheim, oh yeah. You know what I mean? The Bergheim. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a massive nightclub in, in Berlin. Notorious for being difficult to get into. And there's a lot of weird shit that goes on around that club. It's a pretty wild place. But if anyone does want any information about that, I'm going to link to it in the show notes because there's some really interesting articles about people who've snuck on inside and taken some pictures and just described their experience in the world famous Berghain nightclub. Or if you want to do what my wife did and, and not get into the nightclub, there's a very simple way to do that. And that is to go up to the bouncer and when he's about to let you in, just go, 
Zwei? <laughs> what say like uh, two please yeah and they were like no <laughs> don't say anything you have to, to get inside you have to dress in all black you have to not say anything in the queue don't talk to anyone don't talk to you do it to each other just queue up slowly and the same guy has been on the door of the place the the um bouncer that's been there for years his name's sven he has a massive pair of lamb chops and a mustache and he's just wild and he's notorious for being he's basically the gatekeeper He's there every night and you have to basically look right to Sven for him to let you in. So there you go. Is it kind? Does he measure you up? With what? I'm just trying to do a link to the next song. Oh God. This is track 11, Measurements. Trees in clouds, testing doubts, trying That was track 11, the final track of the album, Measurements. Beautiful. Beauty. Didn't he sound like old Sampha on that um, Subtract album that you, yeah. were, you were talking about Subtract earlier? Yeah, yeah, the track Hold On. Yeah. He does indeed, yeah. Banger in its own right. Banger in its own right. That whole album released the same year as this, and we've, we've obviously mentioned it. Same through. year? Same year, yeah, 2011. There you go. Big time for all that stuff. Roughly 2011. Yeah, approximately 2011. Mm. This is one of my favourite moments on the, on Me the album, too. this song. Me too. Mm. What part's that? All of it. No, all of it. But oh, right. Got you. I know that you know there's another bit that is my favourite bit because I point because I smiled when it happened. Yeah. Well, you looked. Yeah. You looked. I've just got plinky plonk piano. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just at the end. Just the a little blues lick on that. It's like, why don't we just throw that in there 10 seconds from the end of the record or something? Approximately. 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 Why not? This song's quite interesting, actually, because. This song was the first time he ever heard himself, his music played on BBC Radio 1. And it was played by Annie Mack. It's an interesting one for her to play. And he always said like, this didn't really translate very well to radio, but him and all of his friends stayed up and listened to the late show with Annie Mack. And she played this song. And that was the first time he'd ever heard himself. And at the time, the interview that this was from, which was in 2011, at that point, he'd never heard himself out and about on the radio anywhere. Right. Can you imagine how much that's changed for him now? Probably can't get away from The funny that. thing is about James Blake is when you go back to all of these interviews from then, he talks about a load of artists. He's mm-hmm. very, very vocal about some of the artists that he's inspired by, either songwriters, either people in electronic music, massive pop stars, whoever. He talks about them. And when you fast forward now, 10 years later, he's worked with like all of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. mad. Yep. He's almost headhunted by the biggest names in the industry. Mm. Although his music is possibly the reason for that, I think his musicianship is more the reason for Mm -hmm. that. His production skills and his musicianship are something that you don't find too often. You find it nowadays with someone like Jacob Collier. And in the past, obviously, different people, I don't want to discredit producers and not call them musicians, but to be a classically trained pianist, a beautiful vocalist, and also a world-beating producer. To have all of that in one package, there's no wonder he's been so headhunted by people in the industry Big names like Beyonce, he was on the Lemonade album, which was massive for her. He's worked with, I mean, Andre 3000 says he won't go in the studio without James Blake being nearby now. Um, That's what I mean, well, he's talking about him at this point. He's talking about Andre 3000 in this. Yeah. Like and how, in these early interviews. How much of an influence like mm-hmm. um, Atlians and stuff were, were for him. Mm-hmm. And so imagine like, that's the beauty of music and popularity in that realm to imagine people that you listened to and inspired you in your first album, mm-hmm. then being dragged into the studio because they need you to help them with their music must just be so rewarding. It'd be hard not to get 
bit it's of a the big dream, egg. Carl. It's the dream, isn't it? Mm. Amazing, yeah, man. He's he's done so well for himself. He lives out in America now, I think, with because uh, he's with Jamila, Jamila yeah, Jamil. Yeah, he, he said that LA just made him feel better. That's mm. what he said about LA. Just made him feel like lighter and that he didn't have as much to worry about when he was there. I wonder if at that point Jamila Jamil had already been over there and he met her there because she went over to America and broke America a long time I ago. Know this. Do you? Tell us. If it's who he's talking about in a video, the Grammys video, is at the Grammys Museum or something. He's doing a little talk and she was moving out there and then he said, well, I had to pretend I was moving out there, wouldn't I? I wouldn't have had a shot, so he moved out. <laughs> really? Mm-hmm. No way. Like, if that's who he's talking about, I assume it is. That's pretty cool. Before her, he was with the, the girl from the guitarist from Warpaint. Mm. So, yeah, anyway, no point getting into his relationship history. A little poetry, though, on lyric-wise on this. It's one of the few moments that aren't covers, I guess, so it isn't Limit to Your Love and it's not Wilhelm Scream. Yep. This um, song is... A real comfort, I think, to end on anyway. Mm-hmm. And the please fall down, testing sounds for the deaf and the forest cold. Really sort of abstract, but mm-hmm. with a poetic sort of lilt to it. Trees in clouds, testing doubts, trying hard not to be too bold. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. He talks about William Blake Super doing nice. that as well. William Blake, as a poet, is someone he holds in high esteem. And how much he can write within two stanzas as well. And again, we've not really gone into lyrics here on this occasion, but... I bet the the they're laced within there somewhere. I'm sure. I think this is a really nice conclusion. I do. I do feel like this mm-hmm. this does a, a really good job at finishing the album. Yeah, right back down to ground. Yeah, very cool album, man. You I, guys I, enjoy it? I, I loved it, mate. When I first listened to it, I was like, "Yeah, man, great." Then in the middle, I was like, "How am I even gonna pull this apart?" Yeah, and find stuff. And then I was doing research, and then you realize that when you research and you're not necessarily listening to the music, so. By the time it got to recording, I felt more comfortable with it, but I definitely had to adjust my approach in terms of how I picked this apart. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely loved it, and it, it's getting better. It's getting better as I listen to it. My concern was how I was going to talk about it because it's not really within my vocabulary, so it's been good trying to get that out. Yeah, I um, hear that. He's a fantastic musician. Like, there, There's a reason that people hold this album so highly, mm-hmm. and I think that's why I just wanted to listen to it. There, yeah. There's a reason that people think this is fucking cool. I'm, yeah. I feel better for having gone through it like this it's an album that I knew quite a lot of the songs off, but didn't know them in any particular way. Yeah. Had just heard them. And, you know, people say to you, oh, do you know James Blake? And you're like, yeah, yeah. But exactly. it's like, I do, but not in the way that I do now. now yeah. And now, now I've realized there was a lot more missing. It's, it's good that you said that because on Overgrown, the album that comes next, Retrograde that's on that, I think it's one of the most incredibly written songs that I've ever heard. And massive. Yeah. I would happily put that in the top for me um, of like favorite songs ever written. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you have those spots in your listening habits where you're like, oh, I love that. Or an album. Sometimes you'll be like, man, that album's great. I really, really, really like Radiohead. I don't think I've heard their first album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because like, that's just not where I came in. And I just never got back there. And I started preferring things at a certain time in their career. Which a lot of people do. You know, and it's like, you miss those things. So yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's been great getting back to Good. where... A song like Retrograde may have come from, you know? Mm-hmm. Fan is an elusive word, isn't it? You can be a fan of, of course, someone for yeah. one song yeah, or an entire catalogue. Yeah. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. So. Yeah, no, good choice, Charles. Should we celebrate that one with a little drink? Let's have a beer, mate. Yeah, I think that about wraps us up on that one. A nice, different kind of album to listen to. Not that we've been straight with our choices, but this was definitely the biggest departure, I would say, from yeah. the road that we were on. So it's nice to have made a difference. As always, we've been round the corner to Beer Craft in Bath, our local beer shop that services us with as relevant as we can get beers to the album at play. We did go a little bit off-piste. We've got three beers. 
One, because we were on an electronic album the first occasion. We got something from Electric Bear Brewery here in Bath. That's I Heard It Through the Baseline, an easy drinking session IPA. We've got the Looper IPA because there's some loops in there somewhere. And he uses a Looper Lival as well. Well, there you go. Full Circle Brew Company up in Newcastle. That's their flagship beer, the Looper IPA. And then we've got Glasshouse Brewery from Birmingham, Bump the Acres. And that was a suggestion from Diana from Beercraft. And that's their Sticky Pine Sap Resin and Peach on Top of a Wonderfully Smooth Grist Beer. Sounds lovely. Crack crack one open, William. Yeah, um, we'll have to do that one then in that case, won't we? Yeah, do that one. So that rounds up that album. That finishes us up there. Oh, yeah. ASMR again from Chris. So then, it's probably about time I announce next week's choice, right? It's back oh, to yeah. me. Oh, yeah. Back to me. It is one of my favorite parts of the episode is hearing what's, what's up next. What's coming next. So, yeah, I've made my choice. Now, this is an interesting one because this band have been around for a while and they've recently gained a lot of popularity a fuck ton of popularity. They're massive now. And because of that, I think a lot of people write them off as, ah, oh, it's not cool to like that band anymore. It was only cool when no one really knew about them. Each to their own, feel free to do that. But I think that is a way to miss out on a lot of amazing music. And this album is one of my favorites of all time. So I'm going with an album called Lonerism by a band called Tame Impala. Very I knew it was coming fucking there. cool. You had to come one week. That's it. I had to. It was, Amazing. I was thinking about it and I was like, man, I see so many memes on like Beam Me Up Soft Boy and stuff about people who like Tame Impala now. And I was like, yeah, they've gotten popular. People are going to rip on people for it. But I was there before. They were oh, I'm up for that, Carl. It is an outstanding album to me. I love it. And I'm really excited to chew through it because Kevin Parker and his way of working and the whole story about how he does stuff to me is really interesting. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Awesome. Good shout. Good shout. Looking forward to that. Cheers, lads. Cheers. Cheers, Cheers boys. Cheers, all. Cheers. Want to just refresh the memory on episode 10, seeing as though we're talking about choices? Yeah, exactly. So as we said at the top of the show, we've got our Patreon set up. The way we want to work it is there's 10 albums per season. We'll pick three each, which will be nine episodes, nine albums. The 10th one, instead of us trying to figure out a way to do that, we're going to pass it out to the listeners and let you guys pick. So if you do want to submit an album to us, sign up to our Patreon. As soon as you sign up, you'll be sent a submission where you can tell us what album you want to throw into the bucket. When it gets to episode 10, we'll pick one out and it could be your album. So yeah, if you want to get involved, jump on there and do that. Yeah, very Sweet exciting. Beans. That's going to be a great one. I think it's going to be cool to yeah. have someone's album. So yeah, if there's an album that you're desperate for us to look through, give us a shout. Beauty. And so I guess that about wraps us up for this week's episode. Thanks, Charlie, for your suggestion for this one, mate. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Glad that we got through that. I feel a lot cooler. (laughs) I mean, you are cool anyway. We are Between the Tracks. We are the book club for music. Get out there and listen to Lonerism by Tame Impala. We'll link to it as always on our website. We'll see you back here next week for episode seven, which will be Tame Impala's Lonerism. My name is Carl Lewis. This is Chris Bunt. Thank you very much, Carl. See you oh, next you're week. welcome. And this is Charlie Fowler. Thanks, Carl. Cheers and gown. Cheers and gown. Thanks for listening to Between the Tracks, a book club but for music. Written, produced and presented by Carl Lewis, Chris Bunt and Charlie Fowler. Intro and outro music by Ross Chapman and Samson Jatto. Artwork by Jim Hurd at Twin Fin Design Co. Thanks to our friends at Sennheiser for the support. If you've enjoyed this album and can afford to buy it directly from the artist, links have been added to our website.